All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, we are going to be talking about order flow auctions, and I am super pumped for this episode. It's a very cool sort of on the Venn diagram of MEV and DEXs that we've been talking about in the season, order flow auctions are squarely right in the middle of that. So in this episode, we start from a high level just to find what order flow auctions are. Then we go through some of the more nitty gritty designs decisions, such as the order types that they're designed for. So more generic sort of broad-based order flow auctions or more app-specific order flow auctions that might optimize for something like swaps. Permissioning, so who is allowed to participate in the auction, the information that's shared, is it full info, partial info? When does that information get shared? And some of the more nitty gritty design decisions, we talk about which components of the OFA should be on chain versus off chain and the centralizing impacts of that. We talk about what it takes to run a credibly neutral auction. And then finally, we move into intents and the improvement that intents have over transactions and the implement and the, uh, the implications for how these OFAs are designed. So this is a really great episode. And without further ado, we'll just jump right in. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Dan. Um, and today, we're joined by Robert and Shin of Uniswap X and uh, Flashbot slash Swap. This is going to be a really fun one. Um, and my hope is that we're going to get deep into the weeds a little bit. And we're going to be talking about uh, order flow auctions or OFAs. And um, I thought we could actually just start sort of with a, a 10,000 foot definition of of how you view uh, like what an order flow auction is. Um, eventually, we're going to delve deep into the design space, but and maybe we could then sort of segue into where Uniswap X and Swap fit uh, within that definition. Definition. So maybe uh, Shin, I can I can pick on you to to kick us off here. Well, order flow auctions to me, uh, as the name suggests, just means when there is order flow. And order flow, you know, is just a, I guess, an array of orders, uh, which right now typically means swaps, but it can also mean other things, transactions. And uh, there are participants in the market who assign value or uh, positive value to these set of transactions or swaps, and they have somehow a willingness to pay for the opportunity to interact with these orders. And then the order flow auction is just the um, the auction for them to kind of bid on the opportunity to interact. Uh, that's that's my understanding of it. That sounds right. And then ideally, bidding um, with the proceeds of that auction typically going to the to the user who created the the transaction or intent, um, or in some cases to the interface that uh, uh, that originated it. I think um, generally, I think we think of oh, if it's not it's not about something like the MEV boost auction, um, where the proceeds of the of the MEV are going to ultimately the proposer of the block on chain. Although I don't know if others would disagree with that um, limitation of the definition. But that, that's typically the kind of auction that, that determines what kind of MEV happens. And ICO phase is kind of a, an escape valve for those. Yeah. I, I, 
I think that's a the helpful way to slice it. And um, there's there's a great uh, piece on Frontier Research, which sort of has a, a two by two of sort of like um, maybe swaps versus more general transactions, and then uh, execution. Um, uh, sort of like block space auctions, but Robert, maybe I could pick on you here because Suave, um, I'd love to get your sense of, you know, you just, just you would, I, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand, you sort of described Suave as sort of a, a platform for OFAs. So I think we all sort of get the concept of like an order flow auction, why order flow is valuable in the process of auctioning that off and returning that back to users, but would love to get a sense because there's already this like plethora of designs for order flow auctions, and they all sort of serve different purposes. So we'd love to just get your sort of sense of what the landscape looks like and where Swab fits, and then we can go down into some of the examples of some of the OFAs that exist today. Yeah, so I thought that uh, what Shin and Dan laid out is a really helpful starting point for a discussion. Um, order flow auctions originally talked about this type of auction, which uh, auction off the right to back run a user's transaction and where the proceeds of that auction we pay back to the user. And, and so starting with specifically, you know, Ethereum transactions, um, it's most easily conceptualized in the context, uh, context of a trade where the trade generates some MEV because it wasn't routed properly and that MEV can be paid back to the user instead of just going to the, the miner or the validator um, instead. And in, um, since the time that that idea of an order flow auction was generated, we have started to conceptualize other types of order flow auctions for more general forms of execution. So I think, Dan, you're referring to um, intents at some point where a user isn't making an Ethereum transaction specifically, but they're saying, hey, here is uh, a, a signature saying, I want to trade from USDC to ETH and um, please fill this in the best way possible. Uh, there's many ways to do this. Usually they involve some form of competition among many different parties to give the users the best best uh, execution possible, which is where the auction part comes through. And Flashbots has created one concrete order flow auction, which works specifically with transactions called MevShare. We can get into the details of that. But in the last year, we've seen a huge explosion of different types of order flow auctions. Ones that are more similar to MevShare, so they're working with individual, um, you know, Ethereum transactions, but also uh, also order flow auctions which work with intents like Uniswap X, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the details of that, or other, you know, uh, RFQ-based systems, other types of intent execution systems. And um, one of the things that we worry about here at Flashbots is that while we have really helped mitigate MEV by introducing these order flow auctions that pay MEV back to users, and that's a net good thing, we worry that we are centralizing the market in new places, um, uh, largely like in these off-chain pieces of infrastructure that run these auctions. And our answer to this new form of centralization in the market is Suave, which is a platform where uh, developers can create the orderful auctions and other types of MEV infrastructure as smart contracts on a decentralized blockchain um, with built-in credibility and, and privacy. Um, I'm happy to get into the details of, of how that works, but at a high level, that's that's kind of how we think about orderful auctions at, at Flashbots, some different types, and um, the motivation behind Suave as a platform for OFAs and the problem that we're trying to address in the market, which is moving this you know infrastructure, which used to be run on chain, off-chain um, and introducing a new vector of centralization. Yeah, I think that's I think that's super helpful, and that's that's a really good. Uh, I'm getting a little 
uh, flashbacks to the MEV season we did with Hossu. We used to talk about sort of centralization, whack-a-mole, which is sort of the game that you end up playing in, in MEV land. But I, I would love to get a sense maybe because maybe we could start with sort of the most straightforward definition of an order flow auction where what we're talking about is just swaps. Right, something like that. Um, I know Swab has a much more broad vision. Uniswap X is pretty laser focused on swaps. We'd love to get a sense um, for you guys, maybe just starting there. Of, you know, we talk about order flow auctions as the ability to aggregate, you know, preferences. You know, very non-specific, sort of arbitrary preferences. I mean, how much of that do you see ultimately? Like, what's the sort of market share uh, in between just swaps versus these sort of broad, more arbitrary preferences? Uh, maybe just to start out, and, and how do you see that kind of? shaking out because i'd love to start digging into this dynamic of like more general order flow auctions versus app specific ones i think it, it today the majority of mev does come from swaps um a large majority of it is either arbs or, or sandwiches there's a small amount which is liquidations and then a small amount which is just weird stuff that's happening on chain which is kind of hard to to quantify um a bunch of nft stuff sometimes gaming sometimes just odd things on chain um uh, and so to that end, like a OFA that addresses swaps is going to address the majority of the market space. I will say that it is not um, immediately clear to me that this is going to stay the, the same into the future. I would expect swaps to be a very, very large and dominant and important, important category. But I think MEV finds a way and is oftentimes popping up in unexpected places. As an example, there's a lot of MEV on friend.tech. Um, which like kind of looks like swaps, but it it, it uh, is maybe can be conceptualized a, a little little bit differently too. Um, and so who knows where it'll come in the future? Maybe a gaming use case, maybe maybe something else. But today it is definitely the majority of MV is coming from swaps. That that is for sure. Was there another part of your question, Michael, or did that address it? Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I, I would just love to maybe uh, Shin as um, sort of a more app specific approach, which focuses exclusively on. I'd I just love to get a sense of like the the pros and cons for folks out there who are listening. Maybe to be really overly simplistic, the way that I've sort of thought about it is, if it's app specific, you can really tailor the user experience, as opposed to if you make it more general, then you your total addressable market is much much larger, right? It's sort of broadly how I would classify the trade-off, but would love to get a sense from the two of you of like, you know, just as developers of the two different styles, like how you both think about it. I, I might I might flip that around because in fact, again, I think like more than half of Nev, I would say, is is DEX related. Um mm. uh, so in some way in some ways actually again, I think I think the it's not necessarily the addressable market is a lot larger, but actually you do have a lot more power once you go to more general uh more general. But yeah, but I I can give uh thoughts after I would curious for Shin's thoughts too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, by definition, if you take a more inclusive approach, uh, you, yeah, by definition, the, the addressable market is definitely larger. I think, uh, the main reason that we have taken a very focused approach is just, we, we believe that's what we specialize in. That's what we are good at. And, um, like Uniswap for its history has always almost exclusively done swaps only. Like we never try to branch out into lending or other like DeFi stuff, no, st no stable coin, no anything else, just swaps. And so uh, since right now uh, there's so many MEV and other execution related problems with the way swaps happen on chain, I feel like Uniswap X is just a nice way to sort of improve the user experience here um and right now yes the the 
maybe that's like more than half of the MEV problem, but uh, you never know, uh, as Robert said, like maybe in the future, there's there's a ton more activities and, and I would love to see that, right? I think that's a that's also a good scenario for me if you know, in the future, uh, crypto industry is, is way more than people swapping tokens. There's a, there's like a lot more activity happening. Um, but I think, yeah, right now, um, we're still taking a, a somewhat special, uh, more specialized approach, uh, smaller addressable market. I think the, the upside is, um, uh, you can just focus on doing one thing really, really well. Um, so like there's only a few parameters that we have to think about, even though that's still a hard problem, but at least we don't have to consider, you know, like a hundred different corner cases when it comes to NFT minting or lending liquidations or like other kind of activities. So that's the upside, I would say. I think one one other interesting thing here, and we'd be curious how you all think about this, Shen and, and Dan over on the Uniswap side of things, is that you have a revealed preference for people to I think participate in some types of OFAs, which are swap related, but not not in the way that you might immediately think. And so there's a, like a type of market participant which wants to backrun uh, like a, someone who is adding liquidity for a new token, as an example, and is like willing to pay for the rights to do that. And that is swap related, but it's not the OFA that you would design for something something like that is not um, a competition just to fill the user at the best price because it's conditional on something else happening on chain or copy trading also. So I think in some ways, it uh, like this question depends on where you draw the boundary of, of swap also. Like, does that address the same type of swap as Uniswap X? Pro probably not. Right. So I, I was going to say, you know, I, I've been generally a partisan for let's try to solve this, the simple version, the simpler version of the problem where it's just um, ordinary retail swappers just swapping with each other and with and with uh, market makers. Um, so sort of a, a batch auction or, or something more like like Uniswap X, um, just because it's simpler and it's like an example of a of a problem that is very large. But I, I absolutely agree with Robert that I think one of the reasons, you know, not not only are there, there's a lot of like really long tail stuff, then there's a lot of kind of middle tail uh, that is deeply entangled with swapping, um, you know, swapping on on chain exchanges for something, you know, um, uh, doing that atomically with user orders. Um, is you know where exactly does that fit in terms of like is, is that is that just pure swapping, um, and then yeah stuff like liquidation auctions where things you know often doing a lot of other complicated stuff on chain does involve a swap, and so yeah so I think it, it ends we end up deep in Mev territory and you know I know this, this is this is the deck season and you've already had a Mev season um, that Robert's been on but um, so I, I you know I think we can we can focus on the decks parts here but I do think it really bleeds into the rest of Mev for sure. It absolutely does, and especially the point, like a huge part of that season as well, was just the idea of returning Mev to users, which is Robert, as you stated, sort of the explicit uh, purpose of um, of water flow auctions from your perspective. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share. And at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteeth. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. 
So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode, let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. I would also be curious just um, just because we, we've talked about this a little bit in, in past episodes, but you just mentioned sort of the on-chain, off-chain component. I would be curious, one idea that we're sort of uh, poking at for DEXs this season is which parts are which parts of a DEX are important to be completely on-chain and, you know, uh, decentralized and which parts are we like uh, you know what maybe actually this this part of the dex is is more okay to be off chain and would be curious to understand like how you think about that from the perspective of order flow auctions like which parts of an ofa like need to be or should be on chain and decentralized from your perspective and dan how did, how did you think about what parts of uniswap x to have on chain maybe let's start there uh sure yeah i'm i'm happy to start and i'm sure dan will have other thoughts after that um so i think uniswap X is um, a combination of, you, of a few things. The, the protocol that was mostly described in the white paper is actually mostly on-chain and it's mostly about uh, sort of the, de the declining, the Dutch order uh, that happens. Uh, and then uh, for us to like create an, a nice user experience and to correctly parameterize these orders, you know, where to start the decay, how long it decays, where to end the decay, uh, we have sort of for now um, attached a uh, off-chain piece to the start of it, so that I know we we ask a bunch of people what how how can uh, uh, what's your best quote uh, for this order, and then using those quotes we sort of say okay maybe like this is where we should start and this is where we should end, um, and that's technically not part of the uh, the protocol itself. Um, but you know, it, 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 it's part of the bootstrapping and now it's, uh, it's sort of relied upon, uh, by the protocol to, to function. Um, so I think, uh, there's like an ideal world where everything is on chain and, you know, everything is permissionless and, and things go start to everyone. But on the other hand, there's also a realistic version where we have to start something and we have to see if things work. Uh, so that's where I'd say we are now and we're, um, Definitely, it's, things are on roadmap to to make it more decentralized and more like the version that we envisioned. Um, but yeah, right now, just for realistic concerns, we have some off-chain pieces there. That's right. So yeah, so I, I think of UsabX as sort of a well. I think of UsabX generally not as an order flow auction protocol or anything, but really it's an it's an order format for signing uh, intents. It's a it's a format for these orders. Um, as currently implemented, I think I see it as this as this amalgamation of two order flow auctions, one of which is a Dutch auction, um, one of which is a is a sealed bid first price auction um, that's, that's, that's run off chain. And I do think um, one of the reasons that I do this this uh, the sealed bid uh, uh, off chain auction is because of just limitations of what you can do on chain because of just the latency of uh, instantaneous somehow. Um, it might be a lot you know it might be a lot easier to to get uh, optimal price uh, using the Dutch auction. As well as about you know some some parameterization around like oh how do we actually find the price discovery around how do we find the right starting price for a Dutch auction which is a limitation of uh, that the, the Dutch auctions have um, but yeah I think there are other kinds of auctions that you could do and I think um, you could imagine as you know a sealed bid batch auction you could imagine a second price auction 
Um, and all of these are, I think, you know, ways that you can just generally do an auction. And here, you know, with when combined with your sub X, you can form, turn them into an order flow auction. Why? So, why do you need an auction RFQ in order to choose where the starting price is? I mean, what's the alternative? Alternative would be just send. You could you could just pick a you could just pick a starting price, right? Um, or maybe you could do something uh, just based on looking on chain. But what like what what's sorry, What's the alternative for picking where you start a Dutch auction? You have to start it somewhere, right? Yeah, you have to start it somewhere. Why not use um, you know the, the top pool for a given pair on chain, or use like you all invested quite a bit at Uniswap in routing as an example. So you certainly like have a perspective on like a price that you could execute a user's order on chain. Um, so why not use that? Yeah, I'm, well, more or less, the, it does use that, but then it you know as as a fallback, as ultimately like if that's that's what it sets the uh, price to if if nobody um, uh, if nobody's able to provide a price improvement on it, right? Um, uh, I shouldn't remind if that's, if that's exact, I may be mischaracterizing a little bit there. Uh, yeah. So I think that's, uh, the, whatever you can do on chain, that's sort of the worst case, right? Uh, and you only, you only need this system if you can do better than what you can already do. And, uh, also the, I think the, to put things into context, we're working with like, uh, basis point here. We don't have, you know, a hundred percent potential improvement and we just decay one point each second. Uh, it's really, you know, you decay one or two basis points or maybe less than that. And so I think it's, it's important to get really accurate, really fast. And that's why you sort of need this RQ system. Otherwise, you know, you pick one point and you decay and no one takes your order and the next second or next block, you're way past your, your potential. Right. So that's, uh, that's what I see. So you, so you need some starting point and you're choosing an off-chain RFQ as a way to like to get a very accurate price, which you're worried about. You need that because you need to decay that price over time and you want to just start at a place which is like within reason, correct? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately in order to get the best latency you can. Um yeah. get the best price while still while still preserving latency. You could just do a really slow batch auction uh, Dutch auction with like a with a low decay to get a pretty good rate, although you're still gonna have some imprecision due to the due to block latency. Um but yeah. And then so you're using this off-chain RFQ to get a price, and the only thing that happens on chain is essentially like the settlement of the user's intent. Is that right? All liquidity is off-chain or is like amalgamated by searchers on chain. Well, there's still the the dodge auction that happens, right? Uh, it's just uh, there's two auctions. The first auction decides where the dodge auction is going to start and end, and then the dodge auction happens, and whoever fills it first fills. Yeah, I, I guess my point being that this like this doesn't leverage just Uniswap um, LP pools. Like it'll either take whatever the off chain RFQ liquidity is and settle that way, or it'll take whatever your solvers find as the, the best route on, on chain in the case that it's not filled through the off-chain RFQ. That's and, right. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not limited or partial to, um, to any particular pool or Uniswap, to on-chain Uniswap liquidity. Right, but just, yeah. just to be clear, in either case, uh, people are free to use Uniswap liquidity, right? As long as they're competitive, it's always, in fact, best to use it. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you all think about the decision to put your flow through an off-chain RFQ first? Because it's, I think, a pretty significant change to the, to the market structure that you have. Uh, a handful of market makers which get, as I understand, the first right to execute users' trades now, right? They can go through the GDA and if someone 
gives a price improvement of I think a 1%, correct me if I'm wrong, um, then they can execute that, but it is initially permissioned to like a smaller set. So can you walk me through like what your considerations were and how you thought about moving to this market structure? Uh, I think, you know, first of all, it's, it's definitely still in beta. So, uh, as we, as we try to roll this out, we're still like, uh, onboarding, uh, these market makers, but on the other hand, um, like, as you mentioned, there's uh, a handful of them, uh, these handful of them are practically, you know, hundred percent of them. Uh, if you look at the volume, the process and the, and the competitiveness there are. So I would say if you, if your, if your best interest or if your intent, uh, as the market structure designer is to get the best execution, uh, for your, uh, for your users, then what you really need is the competitiveness, not the numbers. Right. And so you, you have the best NBA team by putting together five players, not to, you know, just increase the number of players, but to have the, the five best players. And I think, you know, as I said, like, this is not exactly where we want it to be long-term, but I think it's a, it's a pretty good bootstrapping strategy just because it, it kind of suffices to have you know, a handful of them. That's very, very good. And then we can think about how we can kind of open the gate to, to everyone who has uh, the interest to compete in the system. Yeah. The, the way, the way I'd put it, and I've talked about this with Mike in previous episodes is that I think the essential imperative in my view is to move from transaction space to intense space, to move from um, orders that are from the coming from the Uniswap interface are meant to be executed on a specific pool using a specific route and are encoded as an Ethereum transaction. Because an Ethereum transaction, as Robert, as Robert uh, uh, will tell you, is like is it not a very flexible thing. It is hard to program around an Ethereum transaction. Um, it can't be like bundled together with a bunch of other ones. You can't do a lot of math necessarily on it. Uh, you can't execute it easily execute it atomically with other things in a within an Ethereum transaction. Um, uh, or at least you know it adds a lot of complexity to try to, to try to do these things. Whereas intents are are much more flexible. And you sub order order uh, expresses intent, you can do a lot more things with it. Um, and I think that's just essential for I think it's essential for the future of Dex. I think it's essential for something like Uniswap V4, where a lot of pools on Uniswap V4 I think are actually going to, to uh, a lot of ideas for how to do lever reducing hooks, for example. Um, I think are going to depend on having uh, uh, orders expresses instead that aren't that aren't necessarily just like locked to a particular pool, but in fact, like can be executed on any, on any of these pools, for example. Um, now again, I think I think the, the current design is is you know one one way that you can I think get potential improvement on orders using intents. But again, really like since the order format is not tied to that particular one, I think it's actually that's the more important piece of it to me. Sorry to hijack the conversation a little bit, Michael. <laughs> no, you're fine, man. No, I do want to hear your perspective, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious. And then I, I do I do want to um, just ask you guys some of my basic uh, questions about just how to construct an auction or like how you think about it. But I'd be curious to get your take, Robert, before we get into some of the more nitty gritty. Yeah, I think with, with all these things, um, there's a general trend of taking more and more work that used to happen on chain and moving it off chain in order to give users some sort of MEV mitigation. And we're concerned about that in flashbots and centralizing um, the MEV supply chain, centralizing critical parts of, of crypto. And so I think the question that we need to ask ourselves, the three of us, four of us on on this podcast today, but the entire industry is how we get to that point where we're giving users best execution without accidentally centralizing all of, uh, all of the critical parts of the MEV supply chain uh, along the way. 
Um, there's a broad design space and would be, be curious also and and Shane and Dan, how you all are thinking about the roadmap for X and decentralization and what you all have, um, you know, on the horizon here. Um, I have maybe somewhat of a random thought, um, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, as a question, I, I do wonder how Robert think about uh, things like private RPCs. Are they sort of, uh, would you consider them more of an exclusive setting? Uh, one thing we try to, uh, this separate research that I was doing, I was, I was wondering if, if everything switched to a, a private RPC or if some, you know, some varying percentage of swaps uh, switch to a private RPC, whether uh, it will be more centralizing or less centralizing in a way. Uh, and the conclusion I think I, I came to was that uh, it will be less centralizing in the sense that uh, there will be less extractable value assuming people honor their sort of social contract in the private RPC setting. So there's less to extract. And so naturally, you know, the, the, even the best guys cannot uh, extract more than the, 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 the worst guys. And so you don't have this like winner takes all situation, uh, but it will be more centralizing in the, in the sense that uh, now you have a barrier to entry, right? And so now suppose there's a new guy who's much better than everyone else. He cannot get any flow uh, because he's not connected to any of these private RPCs and there's no deals between them and yeah. yeah. So, so I do wonder, you know, how, uh, or have you, have you thought about it? And if so, what was your, uh, what was your um, thoughts on private RPCs and, uh, and, and do you think that's, that's a, that's a direction that we should or will move towards? It's a good question, and I appreciate you asking it, Shin. Um, so are private RPCs more centralizing than uh, like essentially centralized intent infrastructure in general is how I'm taking the question. And I think it like, like I think it's hard to say which is more centralizing than the other. I think in practice, they're both very centralizing. If I wanted to come to some um, some numerical amount that would tell me which was more centralizing than other. I'd probably look at like the economic value that flows through these things. Um, and to that end, I think there could be a, I think right now, uh, I would expect these things to be about equivalent. I would worry more in the future that um, the centralized intent based services end up becoming more centralizing because they start at a point in the supply chain, which is before private RPCs too. And so private RPCs may be obviated in a year if everyone is using intents because the primary way that users transact on the chain will not be through Ethereum transactions. It'll be by expressing your intent with a signature that someone else executes on your behalf. And in that world, you don't have much of a need for private RPCs. Well, but I think now, I, might, I will say I think that... you, you have like a, Sorry, are you guys still leave private RPC for whoever's filling and whoever's submitting the transaction that includes those intents, right? Like, so that the intents can't be like plucked out of their transaction and sent and done uh, shared somewhere else. Like, somehow the block still needs to get built out of other people's transactions, maybe, unless unless the builder is just is just operating directly on intents. Yeah, that that, that is a good point. Um, 
That is a good point. So private RPCs will still be around. I think the the caveat to that may be that like the extractable value, assuming that your private RPC actually holds like is credibly neutral and holds up to the properties that it says, will be a lot, lot lower at the private RPC point than it would at the like intent centralized service point or whatever we're calling it, the intent point of the supply chain. Um, both of them concern me a lot for, for what it is worth. So I don't want to like minimize any concerns around private RPCs also. Um, and I would like all of that infrastructure to also be built on Swaf too. All right, um, guys, I, I want to get into almost like treat, obviously, you know, when we talk about something like auctions, I think it's very simple if you're not in the weeds to be like, oh, yeah, you run an auction and, you know, the highest bidder gets, you know, X, Y, Z thing that you're auctioning off. But there's uh, just almost like infinite sort of permutations, right, of different um, if different uh, auctions that exist. And I would love to get a sense of, you know, when you're going through actually constructing an auction, like what are some of the design decisions that end up making their way into the final product? What are some of the different levers that you pull? I've been waiting for four episodes to ask Dan why he loves Dutch auctions so much and why they why they find their way into virtually everything that this man designs. But uh, yeah, I, I would just be very curious, like almost, you know, treat me like a five-year-old and I'm looking at something like Uniswap X or one of the, like maybe MevShare, uh, for instance, from, from Flashbots. And it's like, all right, what are the different, um, you know, what are the different types of auctions that exist and what are some of the design decisions that that end up running through your head as the implementer? Well, I can answer on Dutch auctions if mm -hmm. that's... <laughs> I want to know. Uh, yeah, I got to know. Uh, yeah. Well, for me, yeah, I think I think whenever, when you're reaching for something for for price discovery, particularly um, uh, for things that are illiquid um, or don't, where something doesn't, an Oracle doesn't exist on chain. Um, what I what I generally like about, sorry, I generally like auctions just as a, as a method of price discovery. And I think Dutch auctions are uniquely well suited as a just off the shelf solution um, for price discovery um, on a blockchain. Because ultimately, you know, if you have an English auction, for example, you have to have uh, uh, censorship resistance basically over the over this. You have a long enough period to have censorship resistance um uh to get enough to get enough bids in um which you also need on, on dutch auctions but there's sort of a limit to the amount of value that can be extracted by a censor for a, a period there um and then you also need uh in an english auction ultimately the number of bids could be a lot higher the number of bids actually have to the ch at the chain was a nice thing about a dutch auction just gas efficiency wise is that because prices start high and um uh you only actually have a have it finish when the auction uh when transaction goes on um you don't have as many transact it's, it's, it's a lot cheaper in terms of gas on chain and then finally um, for on-chain auctions, why I like Dutch auctions is once the once the auction is uh, the bid also happens at the exact time that the auction completes. So you can like do a lot of other things potentially at the moment of that of that uh, uh, the bid the, the bidder at the time that they that the auction completes. I can do a lot of other things. So if you think like a Uniswap X uh, order that has gone to a Dutch auction um, at the time like that that uh, bidder actually gets a place in chain, they can also arb something on chain uh, atomically or something like that. As opposed to when if you had like a lot of bids that had to be on chain. Um, and then potentially canceled as uh, new developments happened. So yeah, so I think I think it's just uniquely well suited for the on-chain environment. I would actually say I'm not a big fan of Dutch auctions outside of outside of on-chain. I think like actually um, uh, English auctions or sealed bid second price auctions are better and uh, from an auction theory standpoint in a lot of in a lot of uh, situations. But on-chain and Dutch auctions are equivalent to a um, uh, to a to a sealed bid first price auction rather than a second price auction. So um, uh, in, in in theory, but. Uh, but yeah, but I think from an auction theory perspective, I don't love them as much. But on, just in terms of on-chain implementation, which I think is just really important. So that's my that's my pitch for Dutch auctions um, uh, as an off-the-shelf uh, price discovery solution. 
and I should say, you know, I think Dutch auctions for um, uh, uh, MEV as, as, as a way to implement an OFA aren't original to, to Uniswap X or us. I think um, uh, there was this, there's an idea generally for um, uh, like an escalator fee algorithm um, that I know Flashbots had been uh, thinking about and some others in, in the Ethereum space have been thinking about it, uh, including as a core protocol feature. Um, and I think it's cool because, it, you know, it's, it, you could build it's a, it was an alternative to basically the 1559 auctions that ended, uh, or uh, second price auction basically ha ended up happening for um as a way to to handle gas price but um but yeah but it would do it in a way that potentially could actually return more of the mev to users that they created you know it, it's it's the first um uh, again it's the first version we intend to iterate on it so when we were sort of thinking about the design we we didn't really you know exhaustively survey every single uh, auction format and like do a do a comparison or anything i think the the things in mind are first of all when you have a uh, repeated gain, uh, a lot of these auctions kind of just give you the same equilibrium results. And what you want is sort of ease of integration and implementation, um, which I think, you know, um, like sealed, build, uh, sealed bid first price auctions are pretty easy to do. Uh, and the Dutch auctions are, as Dan mentioned, uh, very suitable for blockchain environment because it minimizes sort of needed communication and communication on blockchains are, are super expensive and all that. So we sort of just picked the, the, the easiest format um, and we kind of analyzed the, the potential strategies people can can use based on these formats. And, and we sort of went over the corner cases and we think, okay, maybe we, we covered the ground more or less. Um, I think there's there's a lot that we can potentially do on top of what we have right now. Like you can imagine uh, allowing sort of batching of, of bits uh, or batching of orders, or um, I think you can allow different type of bits, um, like conditional bits or, or so on. So uh, yeah, a, a lot to be uh, experimented and, and discovered in the future. But yeah, I think to start, we just pick something that's easy to use. I'll jump in real quick with uh, considerations that we had with MevShare. When we were thinking about developing MevShare, we talked to a bunch of wallets. This was quite some time ago. And essentially all of them told us that they had no appetite to implement uh, you know, intent-based execution, essentially. Like they wanted any OFA that we built to be uh, backwards compatible with regular user transactions. And uh, you know, at the time, there was much less appetite from our good friends at the application layer to use private RPCs <laughs> to, um, is how I would frame it, to ask users to switch to private RPCs. And so it didn't seem like at, at the time developing an OFA, which is based on signatures, was really, really compelling in the absence of us, um, since, you know, Flashbots doesn't operate a, a front end like like uh, Uniswap does as an example. So we needed it to be backwards compatible. We needed it to support MEV redistribution for regular transactions. Interestingly, you can use MapShare for other types of things, um, for it's compatible with other types of orders like UniX orders, that's an aside. Um, we also wanted it to be permissionless for searchers. So anyone in the world should be able to search on um, the flow that goes through MapShare. And we didn't want to enshrine a single block builder um, there are variants of order flow auctions that are a little bit, that could be closer to a builder, um, but we wanted to make sure that you could use multiple different block builders and have a more healthy decentralized builder market with MevShare. 
And if you take those as your constraints in designing an RFA, I think you come to roughly a MevShare, um, although you could do it with different privacy settings too. So that's how we thought through uh, the design of, of MevShare and how we ended up coming to the design that we did. Yeah. It's just fun. Even you know when when doing a little bit of research for this episode, there was some sort of counterintuitive lessons. And I don't know when when you hear the word auction, maybe you think in your head sort of this like canonical guy with like a gavel, and it's like, do I hear five hundred or six hundred or whatever? But there are tons of different types of auctions that just occur in the real real world that have very different parameters based on how much information is known at the time, the time in between your bids, and you know when you know whatever gets released and. Uh, like payment for order flow would be in TradFi is a really good example of a very different type of auction than the one that might be happening in your head where bids are submitted well ahead of time and exact information isn't necessarily known. And even when I was looking into sort of the OFA design space within, um, you know, within our world, within within crypto here, there was like even just for something like permissioning, right? Like who should be allowed to participate in an auction? My immediate you know gut take was that well, the more people the better, right? The more competitive the pricing is going to be, but then you also end up, there's kind of like this, this concept of winner's curse and suffering from adverse selection uh, because, you know, the people that win that, that auction might be doing it, they might be pricing it incorrectly and sort of the more optimistically and sometimes unintelligently you price it, the more disproportionately you will, you will sort of win. Um, so I don't know if, if uh, you know, all the three of you having thought through many different you know, types of auctions and scenarios, if there are other sort of funny lessons that you've taken away either from permissioning or when information gets revealed to participants or like sort of the strategy for, um, or sort of like bid selection or settlement or whatever it is, but would love to, I don't know if there were any like sort of surprise, something that was sort of surprising to you from a design perspective in OFAs, or we could just sort of proceed into where intense, because uh, we've talked about the, the limitations of the the transaction on Ethereum, but I would love to and love to get into intense. But I don't know if there are any sort of surprising lessons uh, that you've taken from designing auctions over the years. I'll let Dan or should talk to things like Winner's Curse and Adverse Collection and some of the more hardcore auction theory stuff. I, I will say that one one anecdote that I have, which was surprising to me at the time, is how even like a relatively large sized pool of competitors can collude to keep prices down in auctions. Mm -hmm. So. The anecdote is, is that uh, when Uniswap v3 launched almost two years ago, it it was very challenging for searchers to integrate. Uh, and you all also launched it without that much of a lead time for the market. And so it kind of just dropped a bunch of liquidity, migrated to it. And a lot of people then were trading on Uniswap v3, whereas a month before the primary, um, the primary amount of volume on chain was going to v2 and things like old curve pools. And, and whatever. And that meant that for a period of time, there was an extremely small pool of searchers who were um, able to ARB Uniswap v3 pairs. And if you were a searcher at the time, the amount that you had to bid in the auction uh, for Uniswap v2 ARBs was something like 95 to 99%. Um, because it was a really competitive market that was spread out across all the entire world. And for Uniswap v3, even when you had something like a dozen searchers who could uh, arb Uniswap v3, they managed to arbitrarily keep the price down in the auction to pay only something like 60% of the value of the arb to the miner in, in MevGuff. And that was quite surprising to me how long a collusion ring could go on with um, how large of a pool of, uh, of bidders were in that collusion ring too. 
and it was within their incentive. Um, the other funny part about this that I'll, I'll drop as an anecdote really quick is, is what would happen is a new bot would come online uh, and start arbing Uniswap V2 and people would go to the Flashbots Discord and like just yell at addresses, say like, hey, zero X, you know, babe or dad, you are arbing Uniswap V3, like, if you don't come and join my collusion ring, I am gonna grip trigger you, push your profits to zero, you moron, you don't need to be bidding all of this to the to the to the miner at the time, you know. We can we can work together here. something like that. And people would find each other this way. They would like check the Discord and this actually worked for some time. So um the I heard, takeaway I heard that I think is that there was wasn't there something that, like there was there were people who would who would alternate even in odd blocks, or they'd alternate like every like uh every few blocks or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. For they would do something like there was some probabilistic way. I forget how exactly it was done, but some probabilistic way that like you would have an even distribution of the ARBs at, at a certain point of profit um, for V3. I didn't hear the even odd blocks thing, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were two participants if if they did that. Um, anyway, takeaway here just was for me that collusion finds a way, and uh, it works with a larger set of people than you might expect. Man, that's a great anecdote. Do you, do you ever any like theories for how they were coordinating? Was it just over the Flashbots Discord? <laughs> what was just like I, yelling look, at each other? I, Michael, I don't need a theory. They're doing it on Discord in broad daylight. <laughs> like, people would post addresses and transaction hashes and say like, "Please DM me." Like, let's keep bribes down. Blah blah blah. Oh my god, that's so funny, man. That's really interesting. Um, Shen, I don't know if you have any anything or we can go into intense oh i was going to say uh interesting social coordination uh use case um i don't know if you guys were following the eth research uh, forum but i think someone uh, posted something about uh, a searcher searcher cooperation or something i wonder um, it looks like a cool technical post but i wonder it will evolve into weird use cases at, at some point maybe i'm misunderstanding that post but uh it definitely, you know, uh, it, <laughs> it rings a bell now that you <laughs> you mentioned this use case. Um, but uh, in terms of surprises, I I don't think there's a ton. I think maybe, as you said, yeah, like as you the like the optimal number of participants in an auction. If your objective is to maximize the proceeds of the auction is maybe not infinity is uh like an unconfirmed surprise to me like that that being a possibility to start uh you know intuitively i just thought you know the, the more the merrier but then the more i think about it the more like i'm like oh maybe um maybe it's not infinity maybe it's you know a hundred or something uh or not even a hundred but uh, there's also an argument for, you know, maybe best execution is not the only thing that we're trying to optimize for. Uh, and in that case, you know, uh, the, that, that optimal number will, will change. Mm. I, I've got, sorry, two more questions for you here. And then Dan, I'll turn it over to you to talk about intents. But something I was, I was curious about um, is how does the, when the information gets revealed impact the pricing of that information? And and what what I'm referencing here is like you know I think about the the EV the sort of expected value of this information there's like the there's like an ordering component and then there's a signal component so like if I have this information 
then that's valuable to me. And those are kind of the two components into how much you might bid on a given, you know, block or, or bit of order flow or, or whatever it is. Um, and I would imagine like if that gets revealed to all the participants, suddenly the signal portion of that order flow is like, well, this is now available to all the participants of this auction. And that isn't super valuable to me, as opposed to, you know, if that information wasn't necessarily revealed, um, then you would sort of be factoring that in. So I, I would just love to get a sense of, I, I have the intuitive feeling that like when information gets revealed in an auction is very important to the outcome, but I'd be curious from your perspective, whether or not that's actually true. I think as you said, right, there's, there's, there are auctions where um, bids are placed before anything is is revealed, or bids are placed before the the thing even happens, right? And there are some some auctions where bids are placed when the the transaction is signed and you send a executable into the mempool and then people will send bids. Uh, I think yeah, I think those are very different, and uh, depending on exactly who you send the actual intent to. Uh, they will assign different value to the um, to the thing. Like, uh, suppose you there's two cases. Case case one is you uh, you give the ex exact same uh, set of order flow to someone, and they have the exclusive right to like you know uh, put bundles around the the, the swaps or uh, or do whatever they want with them on chain. Um, but before you do that, you you tell everyone else that you're going to do it. And the second case is you you only give it to them and you you don't tell anyone else and they they are responsible for like constructing the orders and and do what they say uh, what they see fit. Uh, and obviously the second one is going to be worth more because there are a lot of actions that people can take uh, out of outside of directly interacting with the orders. Right? They can they can do things on centralized exchanges or um, try to like front run, back run, or do other things. So yeah, in, in general, I think that's like a pretty helpful. Um, I don't know if it's a ex exhaustive dichotomy, but it's a pretty helpful framework to think about these things. I, again, um, you know, call back to the MEV season we did. You know, there was this term popped up a couple of times, like auction extractable value, actually, as opposed to maximum extractable value. And I guess like one of, one of the problems that that like I've sort of thought about as well, just in terms of order flow auction outside of the strict design is how do you host one that's credibly neutral and in a permissionless environment which many of these order flow auctions are like really basic question of how do i make sure the auctioneer isn't actually participating in the auction as well in, in addition to many other um sort of concerns that uh, participants might have so i'd just be curious you know for uh maybe all of you like how do you think about hosting like credibly neutral auctions especially in a more permissionless environment I think I think Robert could could talk a lot about uh, especially especially the trusted execution environments. But I want to point out I think this is it's maybe early for this in order flow auctions. But I think Robert's also seen a lot in terms of what relay what is possible in the relay market or what relays can could do in um uh in the MevBoost auction. So I'd be curious for his thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so th th there's a lot here in the MedBoost auction. I'm curious if you're referring to something in in particular, Dan. I think like in what immediately comes to mind is that, uh, and you can tell me if you're, if you're thinking something else, is that relays have sort of a privileged position to be able to say what block wins um, or to act on the information within blocks that builders are sending them to like update their bids faster or what are you specifically referring yeah, to? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of just the ability of a, of a relay in theory, a dishonest relay 
to um, Penny like another real another bidder's bid, right? They know exactly what the other bidders are bidding, so they know exactly how much they'd have to bid to win. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the the relay right now is uh, unfortunately sort of like a, a second price auction um, in in some ways, which is why searcher builders are as powerful as they they are. One of the reasons why searcher builders are as powerful as they are. I think, luckily, I think we've gotten to the point where the majority of relays or blocks that are going through are from neutral relays that don't run builders or aren't integrated as a builder. But it is a worry that I have where you have a more integrated builder relay that um, you know, is accepting external blocks and then using those external blocks to immediately penny on top of them and, and win the meth boost auction. Um, that's one of the reasons why we want to move the auction in meth boost uh, on chain, or not on chain, but within the Ethereum protocol too, to obviate the role of relays and like obviate the ways that you could penny or mess with other other bids. Um, at the very least, leveling the playing field in in some way, and ideally implementing a sealed bid auction instead of this public auction that exists today. Um, and they did. Did you want to talk as well about ways to ways to implement credibly neutral auction infrastructure? Yeah, so that, that, that's one thing we think about here at, at FlashBots a lot. Um, you know, we've been concerned with decentralizing FlashBots ever since we uh, decided to build this off-chain centralized infrastructure to this point er earlier today. And ever since we saw uh, this, you know, trend coming of off-chain infrastructure, it was going to become increasingly important to, to Ethereum and have an increasing amount of economic value going through it. The way that we're thinking about decentralizing today and, and how you run these credibly neutral auctions is um, uh, creating a, a platform, which we call SWAV, where you can define uh, the rules of your auction as a smart contract. And the execution of that smart contract happens within what is called a trusted execution environment. Um, so this is a, a piece of hardware which is designed in such a way that even the operator, the person who physically has the hardware, can't tamper with or see what's going on inside of it. So you know that uh, a piece of code um, is running as intended within a trusted execution environment, and you know that you have privacy with them too. So developers can define their order flow auctions or like a MevBoost relay uh, or a builder you know, in some sort of intent service within a smart contract on top of Suave and the, when um, you know, a user wants to use that, uh, the, what the smart contract's execution dictates will be loaded into an SGX and, and executed within that SGX. And so that gives you the credibility of a trusted execution environment. It gives you privacy so no one can see the orders. And critically, what it also allows is for anyone in the world to be able to run these trusted execution environments and and execute users' orders instead of relying on you know a flashbots or some other trusted third party to do this type of execution. Um, so that's how we're trying to provide like general infrastructure for credibly neutral and, and, and private auctions, and remove the trust that you need today in trusted third parties in order to run these things. Um, because to your point, Michael, I think it's very hard sometimes to tell uh, if you know auction extractable value is being extracted. I think it's it's really interesting. It's not in the domain of, of crypto, but it took the Department of Justice years of collecting data in order to come to the conclusion that Google and their ad auction platform was messing with their auctions. And you know the uh, contention is, is that they were extracting auction extractable value. Um, so it can be very difficult, I think, to, to tell whether 
auctioneers are putting their finger on the scales in some way. It's funny you brought up the Google example. I think that was the very first thing that we talked about in that that season was Google and and their uh, AdWord auctions. So um, it, I think this would be a, I'd love to close on on the idea of intents. So I know, Dan, that was something that that you were very interested in. So maybe if you could just sort of preface us with sort of the, the seismic shift um, that we're seeing in terms of the sort of Ethereum uh, transaction to a more intense shaped world and like where that belongs and fits into this whole order flow auction discussion. Yeah. So I, I think order flow auctions are actually a perfect example of the kind of thing that I think intents are really useful for. So um, in a transaction-based world, um, if, a, if a user is trying, you know, sends a, uh, signs and sends an Ethereum transaction uh, to trade on, say, a particular Uniswap pool, um, they create some potentially some MEV uh, from doing that. Maybe some MEV from being possibly front run, maybe some MEV from, from just being back run um, on it. But the way to capture, you know, if you try to capture that MEV, you have to basically create a new transaction, back run that other transaction. Um, and that's a very lossy process. You, you, know, you have a lot of transaction fees on um, uh, uh, extra transaction fees being done. You have extra, you know, extra gas being paid for this. Um, uh, and you have fees being paid to LPs for like this, this trade being done in both directions on the pool that actually sort of nets out to neutral. Um, when ultimately, economically, what's what's supposed to be happening there is that a the swapper is supposed to be swapping is is basically swapping with a market maker they're swapping with somebody who's who's back running them who's offering to back run them um at least in the case of yeah of like back run back run mev and so that's what uh uh how existing ofas that have to work around the transaction um uh uh model um so mev share flash brothers mev share is a great example and, and we could talk more about exactly how that works but it's an auction to basically be to be the backrunner in this case. But I, my, my point is, I think this is, it's a fairly leaky way to do this, um, and it, it means you actually miss out on potentially a lot of of, uh, of possible price improvement that you could get if you actually had an intent model where um, all I'm doing is I, I'm saying I want I want to trade, and the auction is actually just the right to basically submit a transaction that fills my intent, um, uh, and and you can you could just trade against me or you could fill it on chain. Um, but basically, we don't actually have to go through this multi-step process because uh, which is inefficient um, and that wouldn't done on chain um, because you can do it in intense space. Um, yeah, Robert, I don't know, do, you, do you want to? Robert and I have been going back and forth on this for a while, but I think he, I think he sort of has a similar, has a similar, similar view in uh, in general. But yeah, I could talk more about MevShare. No, I think I think you summarized it well, Dan. Um, I think you do want to move to in intense space. I think there's a lot more you can do with that. I think it's probably better better UX for for, for most people. I think like. Again, the trick with this is just moving to intense space in a, in a way that doesn't end up centralizing um, the the MEV supply chain. And don't have anything more to add than that. I think you summarized it well. And yeah, I, I think it totally makes sense, Father. Of course, that like MevShare and other and other uh, OVA actions that were designed around the way that Uniswap. I think it's Uniswap's fault, more or less, that transaction um, uh, transactions work this way, where you it's actually hard to hard to sell the MEV back to the user or it's a very wa wasteful process if you try to do it um but yeah but i think that that was like a key motivation for me at least in and you know and going to something like uniswap x yeah i think you can do some some things in order to get um get around the gas cost so in most med boost blocks you have the builder paying a transaction to the validator already so you're already incurring like 2100 gas times base fee worth of of cost and turning that into a smart contract, I think, has the overhead of like eleven thousand extra gas or something. There's like a point at which it makes sense in order to, or rather, after um, there are actually cost savings from turning it into a smart contract, and you can like amortize that over many people. 
Um, maybe there are other things you can do, so you don't need to pay the user immediately. You can have them claim. It's like a, it's a broad design space, but I agree that it is, it can be kind, kind of lossy. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm cleaning up your design choices, Dan. You know, um, so <laughs> maybe we should talk a little bit more about future design choices. Clearly, clearly. That's very magnanimous of you, Robert. Very magnanimous. Um, so I, I guess like uh, maybe just, and this will lead in uh, being selfish question here because it'll lead into Dan in my next interview. But, you know, when you think about uh, a world of intents um, and especially there being maybe front ends, right, that sort of collect uh, these intents with entities like market makers on the back that manage some of the complexity. I mean, does that, you know, what's the immediate unlock there? Obviously there's a concern around centralization, but do we also solve some of the the cross-chain problems that we've been struggling with for so long in this space i mean br the bridges seem to be I, I don't want to say they're they're broken they're definitely a a part of crypto that drastically needs to improve right some crazy amount of all of the uh, losses or exploits that happen in DeFi are due to bridge risk and it does feel like uh, the architecture of something like uniswap x um obviate some of the risk from a from a user perspective so i i would just be curious like how you all Sort of see if if we if intents do get adopted and things like um, you know uh, Swab and the whole platform of uh, different OFAs that operate there or Uniswap X or whatever it is like how does that impact the sort of cross chain interop which has been a problem for a long period of time? I think ideally what you want is the is users to just express what they want. You know, I have asset A on chain one, I want asset B on chain two, and then have a marketplace decide what the best path is and take the risk, take on risk on behalf of the user for, you know, managing things like bridges, managing things like reorgs. And so to that end, I think it could really simplify the um, you know, the user experience. I think like Beyond that, one thing that is not may not be intuitive to readers is that it is oftentimes, uh, as someone who's trying, who has has tried to create an RPC product within a wallet, it can be challenging to offer the kind of experience you want with the way that wallets usually work. Um, and Uma, I think, had a great presentation on trying to create a quote unquote universal RPC um, at uh, DBA's research day. Specifically, what that was is uh, um, she was trying to create a way for a user to have an ETH deposit on one chain and have that ETH deposit show up in someone's account balance on a wallet on, on another chain. And it, it actually turns out that even if you use an RPC, it is really challenging to fake a user's ETH balance to their wallet uh, or a DAP, even if um, you know, the balance isn't really fake, it's just on another chain and the RPC is being smart. And if you move to intense, you have a much broader scope uh, and it is much easier to offer interesting product experiences to users, like doing this uh, this product that Uma was trying to make where you have ETH on one chain that is paying, uh, that is used to pay for a user's transactions on another. Um, so domain abstraction in some way and getting out of the constraints that developing within wallets and like normal depths uh, uh, put on you today. Um, well, guys, maybe maybe we can. I know we're we're winding down here. Maybe we can leave it there. Um, Robert and Shin, you both been super uh, um, super generous with your time. Um, for folks who want to find out more about either the two of you, follow you, or find out uh, what you're building um, at Flashbots or, or Uniswap, what's the best way to do that for both of you? Bert C. Miller on Twitter, flashbots.net. If you're interested in reading more about Flashbots, yeah, I'm Shin underscore underscore 
one WAN on Twitter, and then um, some of our papers got uh, put onto our blog. Thanks. Well, this was a ton of fun, and thank you both again. All right, Dan. Great episode. Great episode. What an episode. Yeah. 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 Two, you know, I've, I was really excited about this one in particular. We, we referred back to it a whole bunch, that, but the season with Hasu ended. One of the, the big questions that we were asking ourselves was general versus application-specific order flow auctions. So it was really fun to get Shin and Robert on and represent sort of both sides there. Um, I, I, I thought, I mean, I, I don't know if you had any specific takeaways or, or where you kind of wanted to start, but I, I thought where, where we started just in terms of... Um, sort of the market size of a of a general order flow auction and sort of this aggregator of more arbitrary broad-based sort of intents versus something that's a little bit more swap specific. Love to maybe like get into I had some takeaways about the specific pros and cons of each approach, but wanted to get your take. When you think about it, uh you know, Ethereum runs an order flow auction. Ethereum runs an auction for um uh you know transactions getting included. Um uh, and they picked, you know, they, it, for a while it was this, it was this priority gas one. Um, I think with, with sort of the rise of, of proposal builder separation, um, uh, and EAP 59, you've added other elements into it, but there are, you know, ultimately you do have to order all these transactions and, um, include, decide which ones get included. And so, uh, you know, I, I often talk about how, and in this episode talked a little about how generalized, um, auctions are just inc- with generalized computations are incredibly hard to do. Unfortunately, we kind of have to do one if we have a generalized uh, platform. We have Ethereum. So right now, you know, and, and we, we we started with sort of the uh, sort of more naive uh, versions that miners were running about just what what transactions to include, and then this got more it got more sophisticated with the flashbots auction and with um, uh, and with uh, proposer builder separation. But like ultimately. You're going to have some kind of some kind of way of deciding what what transactions gets included. So really, what this is about is how do we how do we return the um, the math more to the to the users. But that said, you know, I think uh, I think so that that's one direction in which to come at this problem is sort of from the protocol up, and think about like we've got to build these blocks how we're going to build them. The other way is from the application down and say like we've got you know Uniswap has this has this transaction. Um, what are we going to What are we going to do with it? They have this user intent. Um, they want to give the user the best possible price. And there again, I think you actually do get a lot of advantage from just getting very specific and saying, we're going to build this application around the idea that we, we, we might want to run an auction for this particular piece of uh, for this order flow. And that's why, again, I think Unisub X is designed in order to make this uh, the user intent a little more tractable as an object for for that kind of auction. Yeah, I tend to agree. I there It's, it's almost like... Uh... It's like auctions all the way down, or that meme where it's like it's all auctions, always has been. There's uh, yeah. you start to see them everywhere. I, I I do think as well, you know, there are kind of, returning to this theme that we've had throughout the season of reducing leakage outside of the Dex ecosystem. There has really been one auction in town for a long time, which has been the Mev Boost, right? Or let's just call it like the block space or execution level yeah. auction. Right. And as such, a lot of the value has been getting. Um, has been getting distributed to ETH validators. But now what we're sort of essentially saying is there's going to be this this second auction that's run almost upstream of that. And a lot of that is going to redirect value another way, right? And there's kind of an auction for for swaps where price discovery happens, but you can also, it's just a way to redirect redirect value and keep it within the DEX ecosystem. That's right. Now, now as a mechanism designer, I do think there's a lot of advantage. I, I find it easier to start from the from really the simplest um, uh, application, and I think this is why I think I've I've tended in thinking about these auctions to think about them as and primarily from a DEX lens, and think how do we make a DEX that works like this? Because 
building an auction that's like that supports uh, arbitrary computation um, and arbitrary intents and uh, desires to you know front run and back run these transactions, etc. is just incredibly hard to express all those all those kinds of references and actually be able to meaningfully aggregate across many different people's um, preferences, including this you know infinite dimensional computational space. Whereas um, a an intent to trade on a dex, while while very complex, and there are whole textbooks written about. Um, how difficult it is to actually design this this system properly. Um, it is it is certainly much much more compact of a thing and more and more tractable of a thing I think than the general problem and still has all the same you'll you'll end up hitting all those all those same problems if you build the more general solution anyway. So that's why I've I've tended to to try to think about these from Dex from a Dex lens. But that's also just where I'm coming from. I have this framework that I inherited from my days doing consulting, but it's this guy who owned this company used to preach this. It was like focus, simplicity, speed. It was like business focus, process, simplicity, uh, speed. And I, I actually remember there, there was a point where I was paying a lot of attention to the Aave uh, strategy versus compound. And it seemed like for a while, it, it, they, they had this sort of divergence where the compound strategy was to focus on, instead of being like, all right, actually, to explain Ave, the Ave perspective is kind of like we want this to be a marketplace where you can pledge any kind of collateral, like borrow lend any type of collateral, spin that up. Whereas the compound strategy was people just want to borrow and lend in USDC. Look at what look at what's been happening with stable coins, and we're going to be the most capital efficient venue for borrow lending of stable coins. And I do wonder if there's a little bit of an element there with what we're discussing with these these. Uh, these auction sort of venues where it's like, look, eh, it could be like a broader, uh, you know, display of things, but if it's mostly swaps, maybe we, we start and focus with swaps. Yeah. And, we, and we've talked about this before in the context of like dex design, that you have some number of complexity points you can add maybe every year and you have to be very just stingy with them. Um, and that's why, and you know, you saw V1 started with an incredibly simple design. Um, V2 only makes it slightly more complicated. Um, and then some steps up, certainly steps up in, in V3 and V4. But I think you, you don't try to go go all the way to like, you know, we're going to be as complex as current um, centralized exchange uh, uh, infrastructure is today. Um, that said, I, I do think there's a lot of uh, value so conceptually often in generalizing or abstracting, really, because when you when you look at a problem at the, at the specifics of a problem, sometimes um, it can help to say like, okay, what what would be like the ge fully general solution, a uh, fully ver general version of this problem, and then what's a fully general solution to that? And often it it will then when you once you've generalized it, you will actually see this is more similar to a problem I've, I've encountered in a different domain. Um, so I, I do think there's uh, again here we're here we're just sort of getting into maybe tactics and just in trying to like invent invent uh, mechanisms like this. Um, but sometimes it can be useful, I think, to to just go as hard toward generalization as you can early on, just to explore and see, oh, does that actually unlock something that you wouldn't have noticed in the in the individual simple case? Yeah. The I think the other the other bull case for a more general design like a like a suave would be theoretically more sources of order flow, right? Like yeah. if it's a sort of a neutral platform where you can spin these these auctions up, then you theoretically have more access to order flow. You could build more profitable blocks and there'd be a flywheel that that goes in that direction as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and you have access to a lot of more liquidity because all that can liquidity, a lot of liquidity is like locked up in complex things on chain or off chain um, that potentially could be expressed in a swap auction in a way it may not be in a simple like batch dex auction. Yeah, I agree with that. What did you think about? I mean, there was a lot of discussion. Yeah, little little, little tense discussion too, but we we love that about the the on chain versus off chain component and the centralizing. And I know you've, I'm sure you've thought about this quite a bit, and I. To be honest, I do empathize with Robert's perspective a bit where it's like, look, if, if the answer is just to do this off chain, then, then what are we really doing here? On the other hand, you know, I think to myself, I mean, is does it really make sense? Like when we have trillions and trillions of dollars on chain and I 
that's the vision that I see here and that's where I want crypto to go. Does it really make sense that the people that are participating in these auctions are like retail people? Like, do we have to be designing this in such a way that it's like retail people that are participating in these incredibly sophisticated, very high stakes finance auctions? And kind of like, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I yeah, got yeah, intuition yeah. would tell me my mom's not going to be participating in that auction. So, Right. You know, I well, guess that's where I come down. I well, I'm yeah. Not... Well, so I will say I think um, there's a lot of questions wrapped up in there. And one one distinction I want to draw is that on chain doesn't necessarily mean more decentralized. Um, what what goes on chain? Well, in for example, in a protocol like Ethereum right now, what goes on chain is whatever the proposer wants to go on chain. So certainly, an, an auction, for example, I suppose you were to hold an English auction on chain where everybody put their bids in uh, a one block English auction on chain. That is not a that's not a secure auction and it's not a decentralized auction because ultimately the proposer has will censor everyone else's bids and they'll they'll be the only ones saying get included right. Um, in some ways, I think a lot of off chain infrastructure can actually be more decentralized because it doesn't actually depend on it doesn't have this dictatorial control by a current by a current proposer. So I want I want to uh, draw some distinctions there where like on chain doesn't necessarily mean more more decentralized. Um, but yeah, I I also think you know this. Uh, the what you said there is is true as well. That I think this goes back to some of the tension between professionalization and um, and amateurs um, that we were talking about. Where uh, yeah, like some some kinds of um, uh, designs may may depend more on the existence of or benefit people who are uh, uh, you know more professionalized parties. And I think that you know that's true in MEV. It's true in DEX. Um, and I think it does uh, it introduces certainly uh, vectors for. Um, uh, for centralization uh, potentially, but also it, I think it introduces, um, you know, in addition in addition to a lot of efficiency gains, which you mentioned, it actually introduces sometimes more decentralization because often you can actually get a lot of the work done that, that you need to get done sort of by this by this abstract market. Um, a market in some senses is very, it can be very can be very decentralized, um, whereas I think in in other systems you sort of when you're depending on. Uh, you, the, the alternative often is like you end up with like one one party that can do it. Again, I think Mev is a, a perfect example. We have a single proposer for a particular block. Yeah. And there, there are all these examples. Finance is a little bit like, I mean, it's like other regulated, like healthcare in a weird way. It's 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 analogous because they're, it's very sophisticated, the work that gets done there. And it's very uh, crucial to people's lives, right? Like if you mess up something in healthcare, people die. And if your banking system goes kaput, then there are enormous and immediate consequences to that. So yeah, there's, there is a required level of sophistication that does get a little bit more, you know, I'm not defending non-permissionlessness. I'm just stating it's a complicated, it's a complicated problem. Now, what did you think about the, the question of just how do you run a incredibly neutral auction? I've heard, I've heard you talk about this before. I know some of the people in the Flashbots community like to discuss it. There's a, uh, in Cosmos, there's there's this idea of vote extensions, which sort of allow you to on-chain run this credibly neutral auction because you can't be censored by the whoever has the monopoly on constructing the next block. So, I mean, I'd love to get like your your sense of like how you think about hosting a credibly neutral yeah. auction. What goes into that? I, I think the I believe the families of solutions that I've seen. Um, I think it's, it's relevant for the for the MevBoost auction. It's relevant for order flow auctions like Uniswap X. Um, it's relevant for um, yeah for for a lot of for batch auctions for a lot of things. Um, I think the families of solutions I've seen um, often involve so what one family would be involving uh, some kind of consensus process, right? And I think um, uh, you know that that might involve it might include like threshold encryption. It might uh, or it might just be something like vote extensions in Cosmos, where instead of just having one 
proposer contributing to a block, you have a lot of different people and you need, you know, two thirds of them or something to, to cons uh, submissions from two thirds of them to construct a single block. And that can be used, for example, to in, in a yeah, in vote extensions uh, in Cosmos is, is, is a mechanism for implementing those. That's that's one way to try to say, OK, uh, you know, a message will only be censored if like two thirds of uh, validators of this whole set are censoring. So it's sort of like going from a single SIG to a multi-SIG in terms of security um, uh, or censorship resistance on the single block level. Um, so that's 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 one family there. And some, I think you can improve that sometimes by adding like threshold encryption where um, also people can't see the orders that they're getting, that they're including. Um, and there are there are other other ideas about how to uh, how to do that. But that's one family. Another is to use trusted execution environments, which is one that, that Robert was talking about. Um, and mm -hmm. I think there are limitations as well on what you can actually guarantee with that. But that's you know trusted hardware, Intel SGX, something like that. Um, and then the third one, which isn't always possible, is just after the fact detection and and um, punishment of someone. And again, I think mm -hmm. that many times, as, as Robert pointed out, I think that's just not feasible, and, and people can actually. And Chen, Chen mentioned uh, you. You can sometimes get away with just abusing um, auctions like that. Um, uh, the auctioneer can with editors; it's tough to detect. But I think that's you know it's it's another tool in the toolbox. Is if you know you sort of just like detect, look after the fact, see if this if these auctions were executing a fair price or something. Um, then you know, and then punish the or or you know disqualify, and move on from the uh, auctioneer if it if it doesn't work. You know what? I was just laughing about that anecdote that Robert told us was so great because. You know, there's so many brilliant people in this space, you know, yourself, researchers, the people, people who really focus on mechanism design. And they're all there's all this um, emphasis on how can we avoid coordinating parties on chain, all that stuff. And here people are just hopping into discord, you know, like openly colluding. It was just. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, uh, collusion resistant infrastructure is kind of impossible. I think it's 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 that's a, that's just sort of unsolvable, unfortunately. Um, and I think I think he's, I think that well the, the main thing to do is to try to is to lower the barrier to entry and ultimately I think that from what I understand once that uh, uh, I don't know if I'll call it a cartel but is it a cartel it's a cartel once that group of coordinating uh, uh, searchers got large enough I think at some from from what I've heard at some point it collapsed and and um, now you know the the uh, ARB is a lot more efficient so ultimately I think what matters is like, let's just make the markets more and more efficient so that it's not possible to. Um, there aren't such a small number of that they can actually collude in that way, but yeah, I, I agree. It's it's um, uh, it is troubling. It's tough. It's a tough problem, and uh, and I think I think that, that's a challenge for auction. Like, it, it, a big challenge for auction based uh, Mev solutions or auction based sort of anything. Yeah, it was maybe to just describe by the, we talked about winner's curse and adverse selection, but it, it's funny that. Robert immediately launched into this anecdote because in a common value auction where you have winner's curse, the ideal uh, strategy to deal with that is collusion. Um, and and winner's curse, this idea, just to be like very explicit about what this is, right? When you're when there's a common value auction where like a swap, right, is the same value for everyone, everyone's kind of running these different calculations on what that's worth. The reason there's adverse selection there is because, you know, someone who just might not be as smart as pricing as pricing might think. You know, but they might just bid something that's kind of a stupid price. They're actually bidding something that's more exceeds the value of the swap, but they'll continue to win and win and win, and and that's the the sort of adverse selection there. Yeah. So the the other the other solution there is to shade your bid, um, and I think I think you know ultimately it's just to lower your bid because you know you might be wrong. Um, but yes, I think that's that's uh, as a um, I, I, I mean, it comes up all the time. Also, once you start looking at things in, in winners curse uh, terms, yes. Well, the the history of it is there were it was in 1971. Uh, some it was like a uh, oil it, oil it, and gas. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was oil and gas. Right, I think. Yeah, 
some economists ran this study on why consistently uh, in this area, like they, <laughs> these companies just kept going bankrupt or they won these deals. And it was like, oh, well, they weren't bidding in a particularly sophisticated way. So they kept winning the bids, but then they'd go bankrupt and have to capitulate the... Yeah. But, if, but right, if they, if they collude to, to coordinate their bids, then yeah, then they might, um, well, they'll, they'll probably face some antitrust problems, but they also, yeah, it, it could potentially escape that where they, where they just share information with each other ahead of time. Um, what, what I also just, one funny irony is one thing we're building here is coordination infrastructure and coordination done by, done by your, your enemies is collusion. So yeah, one people can use blockchains often in order to actually coordinate this kind of, uh, um, uh, action. So I think that it's it's an irony here that you're building the, the same uh, tools often can be used in order to uh, to cheat the mechanisms you're trying to build. Okay, let me ask you. I've never asked your opinion on this. There was a there was a great I forget someone tweeted this out, but like the the it was I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like the solution to MEV is that you know if you do illegal things, you go to jail. I was like, oh boy, yeah. I mean, there probably is some element of that that's true. And I, I guess I just you know in hearing you describe like collusion. Is, is always going to occur, especially in these permissionless systems. If it's not illegal, people just do it right out in the open on like an official Discord channel. I mean, when, if, how does the law, you know, start to get factored into the fact in, into these systems? Like as a mechanism yeah. designer, how do you think about that? I think there, I think there are things that come up before the law, and I've been thinking about this recently a lot, um, like reputation um, and uh, and some degrees of trust, where. Yeah, I think I think some some things that just if you try to design them as a game that would work in with just totally anonymous one in a one shot game with totally anonymous parties, it's sort of just impossible. Like there are um, you could like prove that actually there's no um, uh, way to make this this system actually work. Um, sometimes you it takes a very small sprinkling of some other uh, uh, incentives like reputation or, or trust or, or legal incentives. Um, to just shift it into an entirely different equilibrium, and actually, and actually, there is a there is a solution. And so, I, I do think part of what blockchains are is you want to leverage some amount of trust. And I think we call this often like the social layer, right? It's it's some amount of of subjective, like um, you know, we have to make some, as a, as a society, you know, a group, whatever, we have to make one like decision uh, every few years about like, do we hard fork the blockchain or not? Something like that. Uh, you make you leverage that small amount of social coordination and trust, which is very expensive, and we don't want to have too much of it to get like a lot more. Um, uh, all this like decentralized stuff. I think that's, that's just generally true is sometimes um, you can get, you're, sometimes you do want to fall back ultimately on some kind of, some sanction like that, like um, reputation or trust or, again, again, maybe even, maybe legal ones as well. Um, but the, the leverage on it is quite high. And I think one, one example of that, I think is like, what, it would be really, imagine you could, you know, we, we end up with like trillions of dollars on Ethereum, right? Like what, ha what would happen if somebody tried to like, you know, to 51% attack it? Or, or you know, sixty-seven percent attack it, and like they could like steal everything on Ethereum. Right? I was like, the answer is like probably they they wouldn't get away with it. Like ultimately, you'd be able, you'd be able to steal something, but you wouldn't be able to steal all of that. And so Ethereum doesn't necessarily have to be worth like two thirds of all the value secured on it or whatever to be for the whole system to work. Because ultimately, like we have these fallback mechanisms, and I see, I see law as one of those. It's like it's a it's a, enough of a deterrent that it shouldn't actually have to be used. I think that's a good point. I I I would push back just a tiny bit. I'd be curious to get your I'll make the reputation because. I don't know. I mean, there are all these examples in history where that has sort of fallen down. And it was like, like, to, just to give you an example of like organizations that cheat solution, not everyone in the organization has the same incentives. This happens over and over in finance mm -hmm. and banking, right? Where you have like hotshot trader, hotshot trader takes too much risk because the calculation for hotshot trader is, hey, if I have two like bang up years, I could pull, you know, if you're a Solomon Brothers in the 80s, you could pull like 
10, $20 million out of it. And then I could leave. But for Solomon Brothers, it's like, if you put me in bad enough positions, this could bankrupt the whole firm. Different sets of incentives within an organization. So yeah. I hear you on the reputation, but I've also always like pushed back on a, a pushback. I, I fully agree. And, and that's why I work in crypto. It's it's a big part of why I work focused specifically on decentralized exchange. Because I think one one such party that has betrayed their trust often or type of party is, uh, is centralized crypto thanks. exchanges. Mm. And so I think I think it's a, I think it's an incredibly important um thing to minute to minimize uh trust there but again i think the uh ultimately sometimes you do need you need like a drop of this in some in some place or another ideally at, at areas where it's not like fatal to the system um necessarily and ideally at areas where it can be detected um to get more leverage yeah so maybe to just wind down here and get into introduce to tease the idea of our next episode a little bit but one thing that i was curious about on something like even like uniswap x which uses leverages a little bit more off-chain infrastructure today is there a path to maybe like when you have something like Anoma or something like that, or a more general purpose framework and blockchain that supports uh, this sort of intense first, just so to speak, like, do you sort of see a future where maybe the stuff that's off chain today becomes on chain in the future? And there is sort of this pattern in history, that you bring up uh, centralized exchanges. Okay, well, in the beginning, a decentralized exchange made absolutely no sense because Ethereum didn't exist and we had no infrastructure for that. Over time, you know, centralized infrastructure paved the way, but now DEXs are making headway against even centralized exchange volumes. Um, so there's sort of this pattern of like, okay, in the beginning, you probably need a centralized organization, which is a little bit more um, command and control, more structured, like an executive branch um, to, to make some of these decisions. But then over time, it does tend to decentralize in crypto. Do you see a path, anything that you can share about that? Do you see that happening for Uniswap X too? I think the most, in my view, like one, one of the most decentralized systems is a market. If we can design a, a market with where people are, that's actually competitive, then I think like you actually end up with a lot, often a lot of good outcomes. Um, and so I, I see, yeah, exactly. You sort of want to move from maybe a, um, a, a system, a system where you need to depend on, on more trust um, on, on certain parties to act um, to one where, yeah, exactly. Like every, it's sort of this house of cards, like won't fall down because everybody's actually holding each other together. And there's, and there's an efficient market that's been, that's been bootstrapped out of it. This next episode, uh, Dan and I are going to go a little bit more into intense and also just how uh, cross chain DEXs can work. And that'll be a really fun one. But uh, for now, this was a ton of fun, Dan. And I will see you, uh, see you all next week.